0: Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to go forward, always ready to press forward as the writer to Hebrews challenges us in this section. So we'll have a few moments for silent prayer to make sure we're all ready to study the word in fellowship, ready to go forward. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, today we woke up with the news that we still live in a very extremely dangerous world, that there are many enemies out there who seek to destroy Western civilization, who seek to destroy America, seek to destroy England, seek to destroy these nations that are the very, very foundation of of solid biblical teaching and missionary activity and support for the nation Israel. Father, we know that this is more than just a physical battle, but this is a spiritual battle, that these enemies are enemies that are driven by a pagan religious system that is based on the doctrines of demons, and that they're, they will stop at nothing short of the total destruction of, of the world, if necessary, to get their way. Yet we know that you are in control, that nothing can happen without your permission, and that the fact, very fact that this plot was discovered in a timely manner is just another evidence of your sovereign care, protection and guidance of this nation. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect us, protect our president, guide and direct him and others as they make decisions. Those who are involved in security, those who work at the airports, who work at the at the ports, those who are involved at every level of national security. We pray that you would give them wisdom, insight, sensitivity bring to Their attention, the information that they need in order to uh, continue to protect this nation. Father, we continue to pray for Israel too in this battle, in this war against Hezbollah, against the uh, Syrian—I mean, against uh, the Lebanese. Father, we pray that you would continue to give them uh, wisdom, strength, courage, stamina to stay the course. And Father, we recognize that we are in the midst of this spiritual battle, but for most of us it's a battle related to our own spiritual life and the strength that we have is strength that comes from your word. Now Father, as we study these things this evening, may we be challenged, strengthened, encouraged by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6. What a great chapter. It's a challenge. Once again the writer of Hebrews is challenging his audience he has these cycles he makes his points there's this didactic section explanation of a doctrinal point and then there is this warning as he began the last didactic section the beginning of chapter 5 he didn't get very far only got down about 10 verses and all of a sudden he had to shift gears and hit him with a uh, not only another challenge but a harsh warning related to their own spiritual failure. And in the midst of this challenge, this warning comes in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which is one of the most contested, debated passages. You always find somebody comes along and thinks that this shows that you can lose your salvation. And it doesn't teach that at all. We can't lose our salvation. Our salvation is not based on who and what we are. It's based on who Jesus Christ, on who God is, and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Therefore, it is greater than our sin, greater than our failures, greater than anything that we can do. It, so our salvation is based on what God has provided for us. And when we understand what happens in salvation... I don't know how anybody can possibly think that it can be lost. I mean, just think about what takes place. Second uh, Corinthians uh, five seventeen says that therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We're a new creature. That gets reversed. Oh yeah, and then you expect, then you trust Christ again. You you get regenerated again, and then you sin, and you get you die again, and then you get your salvation again. Just absurd. But of course. What this passage says is that once you lose it, you can't get it back if it's talking about losing salvation because it says that it's impossible to renew them again. So this just does not teach anything about losing salvation. But what it does teach is something that should bring every one of us up short because it is a very serious and sober warning that the believer who becomes complacent about his spiritual life and begins to reverse course and to regress back into uh, carnality, living like an unbeliever, thinking like an unbeliever, that when that happens, there can be a point when it is for all practical purposes, and that's the idea just to give you a summation, for all practical purposes, you reach a point of no return and there won't be recovery, there won't be uh, 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 a renewal, uh, there won't be uh, a reversal of that carnality. You you have just reached a point of no return, and at that point, usually you start going down the path of the sin and to death. So let's pick up the context. Six one. Therefore, drawing a conclusion based on the challenge already made that they have reversed course, that they're acting like babies again, that they have drifted away from the foundational principles of the oracle of God. They need milk and not solid food. And let me make an observation here that I haven't made. If you go back to the, the previous section in 5.12-14, to 14, the writer says, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody to again teach you the first principles. But he's not going to do that. Isn't that interesting? You would think that he, after he says, You need somebody to come along and teach you the basic ABCs, then what we would get in chapter 6 is the ABCs. But he doesn't do that. In fact, when he comes down to 6-1, he says, leaving, he says, literally, therefore by leaving the discussion of the basic ABCs related to Christ. See, he's going to press on anyway, even though they're carnal, even though they need milk, even though some of them have already reached a point of no return, he's not going to stop and review the basics for them. He's just going to press on to the challenge and continue to uh, teach the meatier doctrines that we find in the rest of of the book of Hebrews. So he says, Therefore, by leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us press on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And I pointed out that this should be translated, Let us press on, push on, to maturity by leaving the foundational teachings of Christ. So we're not going to get anywhere if all we do is study the gospel. And it's very important to study the gospel. It's very important to hear the gospel repeated again and again because you never know. There's maybe somebody out there who, in the audience who's never heard the gospel. It's never been made clear. You never know when somebody's going to hear the tape. Somebody's going to hear... Watch the DVD, and all of a sudden the gospel is going to be clear. And that's one thing that uh, I've always tried to do is, and I don't always do it, but I try to uh, always make sure that the gospel is there in any given in any given message because you never know who, who needs that. But you can't just teach to babies all the time. You have to present a greater challenge so that people can grow. People can't grow Beyond the level of teaching they're receiving. And if all they hear is a thousand and one different ways to give the gospel, which is what you get in too many churches, if you get that, to, to the way the things are today, we ought to just be thankful that people get the gospel straight. Uh, that's so rare. But we are to press on to maturity by leaving the foundational teachings about Christ. Not laying again. And then we went through the these uh, six categories of foundational doctrines, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And then in verse 3, which slide I've lost, we read, and this we will do if God permits. And in making that statement, the writer is, there's, there's an ominous tone here that God may not permit us to press on by leaving the discussion of elementary principles. There may be something going on in terms of our own negative volition and the way God has structured the spiritual life that we may actually get to a point where there is no recovery. And this is where he goes immediately in verse 4 where he says, "...for it is impossible..." For those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 5 reads, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away. Now I'm reading from the New King James and there are some translation issues here. There is no conditional clause in verse 6. It says, and fall away. So you, it's a, just another, it's the last in a series of five uh, five statements. And here they are. Once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift in 6.4b, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, 6.4c, have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come in 6.5, and have fallen away in 6.6a. That is the correct translation. It is not... Uh, and if they fall away and even if they fall away or what, or anything like that, those are interpretive statements that are added, uh, by the translator. It is just a series of participles, series of eras participles that are all controlled by an initial article in the Greek. So that shows that all five of these are related to the same thing so you can't take that last one and flip it out as into another kind of clause you have five participles but at the very beginning of this string of clauses you have a you have a, a an article in the greek and that article relates to all five participles so we have to tie these all together they've done all these things they've been enlightened and they're all aorist tenses i think the next slide shows, shows the Grammar here. It is impossible to renew to repentance those who, and see that's really what you have at the beginning. Maybe if I redid the slide, I'd put the who up there with, with those because you have a uh, a definite article there that controls these participles. So with the definite article, it indicates that they're uh, they're all relative clauses. So they've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers or partners with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God. Now notice I put in in uh, yellow there the syntax of each of the participles. Uh, the first one, have once been enlightened, is an aorist passive. Participle. The next one's an aorist middle participle. The next one's an aorist passive. Then the next one's an aorist middle. And there's some sh- slight shades of difference between the middle and the passive in this string, but the point is they're all aorist participles. Now aorist tense indicates a an action when it's a participle, it's an action that precedes the main the main verb. And the main verb here is this is this infinitive to renew. So the timing of these events these these participles precedes the time of the of the um, of the participle of renewing so it's talking about the fact that these people have had this experience okay they have they've been enlightened in the past at some point they have tasted the heavenly gift they have become past tense, at some previous time, partners of the Holy Spirit, they have tasted the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and finally, they have fallen away. It's not just a hypothetical that what happens if they've done all this and they might fall away, but they have. There are those in this group who have reached this stage where they have had the first um, five things take place and then the sixth one fallen away is also a reality. They have fallen away. And for them, the writer says, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's take it apart. When we look at this... Depending on the English translation that you have, the the King James translators did the right thing. They took the, this phrase impossible, which is, uh, is in the first verse, it's the second word, gar, I mean, it's the, the, at the very beginning, it's the first word in the Greek, is impossible, adunitas. And it means that it's something that is not, not possible, or impossible, that A at the beginning of the word, Means that it is—it's like the the, the uh, English "un." It negates the word, so it is not possible. "Dunatos" comes from the Greek word uh, "dunamos" for ability or power, where we get our word "dynamite." And you'll always hear some preacher who doesn't know the Greek say, "See, we have power in the Christian life, dunamos. It's dynamite. It's really poor. It's ability." And there is no ability for this certain group of people. Now, it says it's impossible. And then all the way down in verse 6, New King James doesn't, I I, I stated that wrong a minute ago, uh, does not handle this correctly. The infinitive is all the way down in verse 6, where it says uh, to renew them again. But... That's a long way from it is impossible. The reason adunitas is placed there at the beginning, the word impossible is up front, is because he's making a very strong case here. This would be boldface in modern type that he's emphasizing the impossibility of this. And I think the um, if you've got a New American Standard, it w- starts off for and it leaves the, impossible, the word impossible to verse 6. If you've got a New American Standard, it'll say for for those who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, on and on and on, it is impossible to renew them again. It puts the impossible down in verse 6 so that it makes better sense in English. Because in English we have impossible and the verb it controls three verses apart. It's hard to, for that to make sense in English. I would translate it, it is impossible... And I would move the infinitive up to the first verse. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That is what this this section is talking about. It is a dire warning that you can reach a point where it's virtually, and notice the adverbs I'm using here. It's virtually impossible for all practical purposes. It's impossible because what we learn is that it is not impossible for God, it is just writer is writing from the perspective of the, the phenomenal phenomenological perspective that it's the, the reality is 99.99% of the time people are not going to recover. They are mired in their carnality. They are now blinded again by darkness and they're just not going to turn back and recover. So it is, from that sentence, impossible. Now, we have this same word, impossible, used in a statement made by Jesus in Matthew nineteen twenty four through 26. Actually, the word occurs in verse 26, but I thought that I would go back and clear up a little uh, misunderstanding or confusion that we have in verses 24 through 26. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now some people have taught that um, what this describes is an interesting phenomenon in the ancient world, and we saw an example of this in a gateway and an old gateway in in Israel that you'd have a huge gate that wagons and, and uh, large groups of people could move through. That would be the large gate, but especially during times of war, times of uh, uh, when, when the city was under siege, there was a small gate that was just large enough for one person to get through that s- small doorway that sat inside the large gate. And, of course, if you're riding a horse or a camel or anything like that, you'd have to have the whole gate open so you could get through. But this small doorway is about maybe four feet high and about two feet wide. And they called that, they say, the eye of the needle. And so you will often hear people think that that's what this is talking about. The trouble is it's a different word in the Greek text than the word they use in the language to describe that particular gate. So this, this Jesus isn't referring to that at all. He is not talking about uh, getting a camel through that little bitty doorway because I guess it may be conceivable that it could it could happen. So what Jesus is talking about is the eye of a sewing needle. That's the word that's used for needle here. Is a sewing needle, not the the word that was used in the idiom to describe that small door in the larger gate. So he is talking about the fact that it is absolutely impossible. You're never going to get a big camel through that little bitty hole that's on a sewing needle. It just isn't ever going to happen. It is something that is impossible. Why? Because the issue isn't wealth or personal prestige or power. The issue has to be regeneration. So the disciples hear that and they say, well, who then can be saved? If rich people can't do it, people who have power and prestige and uh, position, if they can't get into heaven, who can? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So he alludes here in this last sentence to a what is called a gnomic principle or a, a general principle that is true throughout all time, and that is related to the omnipotence of God. That with God, all things are possible. So when it comes to a believer that is in carnality and in, in uh, a state of uh, just mired in his own rebellion, it's not that God can't renew him to repentance, but God isn't the subject. God isn't even mentioned there in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. What we have is a statement just related to for impossible. The "it is" as you'll see in, the, in your English is in italics, and that is added by the translators so that the sentence makes a little more sense and reads a little more smoothly in the English. But in the Greek, it literally says "for impossible for those uh, for those who fit this this category to renew them again." It doesn't say who; it's just making a general statement that it is very unlikely, extremely unlikely, for people who have reached this point of spiritual reversal to be renewed and to recover. They reach a, a point of no return. Now, does that mean that they've sinned and it's too much for the grace of God? No, it doesn't. God is still able. It's just saying that you know most conditions, when people reach this point, they don't recover. They just stay mired in their uh, sin, their depravity. Well, now let's look at these verbs and these clauses that are set up here, these participles, to understand why we, we must see that these are referring to someone who is a believer, who is fully regenerate. First of all, the very first characteristic is that they were once enlightened. This is the Greek verb photizo which means to give light to, to enlighten, or to illuminate. This person has been enlightened to the truth. Well, wait a minute. You might say Jesus came into the world to be the light of the world, and all men were enlightened by him, according to uh, John chapter 1, using the same verb. But the way we study a word like this is we look first and foremost to the author because the concept of being enlightened in the Scripture can apply to one of two, two categories. It can apply to salvation, and it can apply to the spiritual life. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that God would uh, open the eyes of our soul, enlighten the eyes of our soul, which is a figurative way of talking about uh, enlightening our thinking. So it's talking about believers at that point. Uh, Another passage is uh, enlightenment has to do with salvation, so we have to look at the context and how an author uses the word. Because whoever the writer of Hebrews is, he may use words in a slightly different way than John used words. And John may use words and phrases a slightly different way than Paul used those words. Because in the process of inspiration, each author is writing within their own background, their own vocabulary, their own frame of reference. So whenever you do word studies, it's important to distinguish what is meant, how the author uses those phrases. A classic example is that in Paul's writing, he talks about the fact that when you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, you enter into Christ. And there's a famous phrase that we all know, in Christ. If any creature be in Christ, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. In Christ. But but John uses the phrase, in him that we're to abide in Him. And he uses that phrase in John chapter 15. But for John, in the way John uses the phrase in Him and when Jesus is speaking, he says, if anyone is in me, he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We're not talking about something that's a positional reality. We're talking about something that's an experiential reality. So Paul uses the phrase in Him. And when Jesus is speaking, because it, it. depends on how it goes in the dialogue. Jesus will say, you need to abide in me. And then John turns it over into a third-person statement and says, we need to abide in him. So it's in him, in me, is relational fellowship. In John, it's positional in Paul. Now, if you don't know that, you're going to really make some drastic uh, interpretive errors when you get to the... Uh, the analogy of the vine in John chapter 15. And a lot of people do that. They automatically assume that every phrase has to be interpreted the same way by every author. And that's just a a fundamental fundamental error. So let's look at another passage in Hebrews where the writer uses this same phrase. In Hebrews 10.32, just two or three chapters later, he says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, Photizo again, you endured a great struggle with suffering. What is that talking about? That is talking about the time which the readers of this letter, those to whom he's writing, were saved. He says, After you were illuminated, so this enlightenment, after you were enlightenment, enlightened to the truth, is a phrase that the writer of the Hebrews uses to refer to the time when they were saved. Paul uses this same enlightenment metaphor. He doesn't use the word, but he uses the same uh, metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and following. He says, "...even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God when we were in Israel this last time, I always love it when something like this happens i 've been had an uh, opportunity to get to know a young pastor who's really uh, uh, just de- really beginning to develop a pastor of Frederick's, Fredericksburg Bible church Jeremy Thomas. And Jeremy and I were, have been talking for some time about the whole issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And Jeremy said, you know, a great verse to use against uh, election and against Calvinists is Second Corinthians 4. 4. Because if people are, unbelievers are elected to damnation, and no matter what happens, they're going to, to go to hell, then why does Satan have to blind their minds to the truth? It's already determined whether they're going to be saved or not. doesn't have anything to do with their volition. So I thought that was a good observation on this passage. Uh, in, the, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. It's not just their total inability, which is what a five-point Calvinist would argue. They're totally depraved, but they, they take that to a position of total inability that the unbeliever just is incapable of seeing the light of the gospel. Well, if he's incapable all by himself of seeing the light of the gospel, again, the question, why does the devil have to blind him to the truth? So we see this light Metaphor coming into the analogy here so that, uh, they're blinded so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then verse five, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, quote, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts. What's that? That is another way of talking about enlightenment he is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Paul uses this same imagery of enlightenment to talk about what happens at salvation, at regeneration, when uh, people are saved. And that fits generally within the context of what's going on. In John. So let's turn for just a minute while we're talking about regeneration to understand what's happening in John. In the Gospel of John, you have this tremendous motif all the way through talking about light and darkness. Uh, the Logos comes into the world, and we're told in verse John 1-3, in him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then, uh, it talks about John, that John came as a witness, to bear witness of the light. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And it seems like in verse 9 that this is talking about some sort of general revelation or common grace, enlightenment that comes just by the very fact that Jesus comes into the world as a result of the incarnation. And then uh, in John chapter 3, we have the story of Nicodemus and Jesus coming, I mean, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. But when that conversation is over with, and we're not sure just exactly how that, uh, con- that, that conversation ends, if you've got a red letter Bible, which I do, but only by mistake, you know the problem with the red letter Bible is, is the red letter Bible makes it look like only the words in red are, are Jesus' words. Well, you see, the whole Bible is the mind of Christ. So there's an, there's an implication in a red-letter Bible that some words are more significant than others. Some words are more inspired than others. So you always have to be careful. Um, that's, when, when I get a computer program, the first thing I do is turn off the red letter. But at the end of this conversation... And what, what is interesting here is when you look at a red-letter Bible and you look at chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Jesus is speaking. And in mine, anyway, Jesus doesn't stop speaking until verse 21. Actually, scholars debate this, and they're not sure when Jesus stops speaking and John starts commenting. But at the end of this conversation with between Jesus and Nicodemus, We see something very interesting that happens. Jesus is talking about eternal life in verse 15 and receiving eternal life in verse 16. And then we get down to uh, verse 19, and we read, "...this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed." So right in the middle of all this light-darkness motif, you have this discussion of regeneration. And Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews, by the way, his name was not Nicodemus. That was a title. Nicodemus literally means a ruler of the people. That's That's his title. From Jewish sources, there's indication that he was the most renowned Bible teacher of his time that he was the most knowledgeable uh, individual we don't know what his actual name was but that's he is the leader of the people he's a ruler of the Jews comes to Jesus at night that could be probably not because he's trying to be covert in his actions but probably because with his responsibilities he was too busy during the day to come and talk to Jesus. So he came at night and that's another aspect of this play on light and darkness in John. He doesn't come he comes at night during a time of darkness looking for what? Looking for the light. John is just a master at weaving those kinds of nuances into uh into the story. Says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. He doesn't know what question to ask, but he has questions. And Jesus answers. He goes right to the point. In verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This term born again is the word regeneration. Titus 3 5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. See, we can't do good enough deeds to get saved. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. So it automatically ties in, regeneration connects with justification. And that's one of the important things that you see is as you study the dynamics of the different elements that are involved in salvation regeneration justification which of course means what imputation of righteousness it's not our righteousness that god looks at it is a an imputed or a given righteousness that comes from Christ. That's what God looks at when He declares us just. So regeneration is then connected to justification. Justification is connected to imputation. Imputation is connected to the giving of eternal life. So all these things fit together. So if, you, if a person could lose salvation, all these all these different facets of our salvation would then be reversed. So I've always thought that anybody who thought that you could lose your salvation has an extremely anemic, diluted, uh, simplistic understanding of what God does to the individual at salvation. It is a magnificent thing that God did for us at the instant of our salvation. We cannot uh, possibly go through a reversal of that. It's not just that we get eternal life and then that's lost. It's, It's much more profound than that. Now, we're told in scriptures that we're composed of three basic com- components, our, our physical body, and then we have a, an immaterial part that is comprised of a soul, a self-consciousness. We know who we are. We look in the mirror. We know that it's, it's me. The dog looks in the mirror barks at the other dog that it sees. Uh, animals don't have that self-consciousness. Uh, you have a mentality. You think. You have a conscience that tells you what you ought or ought not to do. And you have a volition, a will. But what, and, and the way I picture this is because this is dynamic. It's, it, we talk about these different components for academic purposes, but in the reality of our makeup, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between I think and I feel, especially if you're postmodern. All you can do is feel, but you're really thinking. They're always confused. You have volition. You have conscience. All these things work together in an inter- interrelated uh, way. But what binds them together is something that we call a human spirit. This human spirit is that which enables the self-consciousness to think about God, the, uh, to, be, to be God-conscious, for the mentality to think God's thoughts, for the conscience to have God's values, and the volition to choose for God. That's the role of the human spirit. It makes us who we really were intended to be when God originally created Adam in the image and likeness of God. But when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. He lost that human spirit. He lost something. Now, a lot of there's a lot of folks, a lot of theologians who who don't have this understanding of regeneration. I remember getting in, in a conversation with a friend of mine a long time ago and we were discussing this and i i made the point that that spiritual death means that adam actually lost a component of his nature well how do you get that well because when you're when you're born again there is something that becomes alive that was previously either not there or was dead there is a component that's added well well he said how how do you get that i said well It's born again. Something comes to life that was previously dead. That indicates something is not there ahead of time. And whatever that is, uh, whatever we want to call it, I call it a human spirit, is that which allows man to relate to God. And that means that the soul suddenly becomes Fully aware and capable of relating to God, knowing God, understanding God, and we can see the emphasis on this played out in the use of the word pneuma in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 through 15. I'm not going to take the time to go through that now, but that indicates that that we learn uh, and have that capacity to learn doctrine only once we uh, are, are spiritual. We have that human spirit that enables us to relate to God. That's regeneration. That is enlightenment in another way of talking about it. So the writer of Hebrews says, For those who were once enlightened, this is a synonym for regeneration, those who have moved from darkness to light. And that is what happened at salvation. Paul says that we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. This is enlightenment. Now, the second phrase is an even more powerful phrase. These are those who have tasted of the heavenly gift. And here we have the Greek verb guo, which means to taste, to receive, or to fully experience. Now, some people have made the mistake of saying, well, tasting here is just like taking a little taste like when I was back in the back and somebody brought some really good cookies and and I've been off sugar for a while and I but I wanted to taste it so I just broke off a little tiny piece and I tasted it as opposed to uh some people who went back there and took a whole cookie and ate the whole cookie and fully fully experienced the cookie as it fully entered into them, okay? Now, what is this passage talking about? Is this talking about somebody who just got a little nibble, just got a little taste, just got a little hint of the heavenly gift? Or is it somebody who fully experienced it? Well, let's look at how the word is used in, in, the, in Scripture. In Hebrews 2.9, the writer of Hebrews uses this same word to refer to what happens to Jesus on the cross. And in that verse we read, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might just have a slight little nibble of death for everyone. Is that what that means? No. He fully experienced death. Full spiritual death. Separation from God. When he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He fully experienced death. For everyone. He didn't just kind of get a hint or a nibble or a, a, a little bitty taste. He fully experienced it. That's what this metaphor means. It doesn't mean just to go back there and break off a little piece and just get a hint of what it's like but to fully experience uh, death. To fully experience the gift of God. The heavenly gift. Now this is very important to understand this because there are people who promote what is called Lordship Salvation. And Lordship Salvation teaches the, at its very core the idea that if you are truly, really, genuinely saved, if you have real faith, you know, as soon as somebody starts putting qualifiers on faith, you know they've been influenced by Lordship Salvation. Whether they heard, ever heard that term or not is irrelevant. But they'll say, if you're really saved, if you've truly been regenerate, then there are certain things you're never going to do. You're just never going to be deeply, profoundly carnal. You're never going to be able to turn your back on Jesus for the rest of your life. Because if you were really saved, you just wouldn't do that. Their view of regeneration isn't what I just presented, which is the idea of gaining something. For them, regeneration is a limitation on the capacity of your sin nature. I remember some years ago, I read an article... I knew the man who wrote the article. He'd been a classmate of mine in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary some years ago, and now he's a professor at a seminary, I believe, in the Philippines. And he wrote an article discussing Lewis Berry Chafer's Doctrine of the Spiritual Life and Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield's critique of that. Warfield was probably the most well-known theologian of his day at the turn of the century, and he really blasted Chafer when Chafer's book, He That Is Spiritual, came out. And so this friend of mine was uh, analyzing this, and at the end of the article, he said, now, Dr. Chafer made many valuable points in the book, but he says, I think Dr. Chafer underestimated the power of regeneration to limit the capacity of the sin nature. See, in other words, if you're truly saved, you just can't be as nasty and as naughty as somebody who as you were before you were saved. In fact, there's a very well known radio uh, pastor and expositor of the word from out in Southern California, who is one of the greatest promoters of lordship salvation today, who correctly interprets Hebrews two nine, but then when he gets to the same verb in Hebrews six four and Hebrews uh, yeah, in Hebrews six four, he says, "See, this just means that they didn't really. They they were, they were sort of a false professor. They just heard the gospel as a false profession. They didn't really believe in Jesus. And that's one of the one of the things that they that Lordship salvation comes up with is if you're saved, you're going to live a certain life and persevere to the end. And if you don't persevere to the end, then you weren't really saved. So how do you know if you're saved? Well." At the end of your life, if you're still believing in Jesus, then you know you were saved. But if at the end of the life, your life, you have turned your back on Jesus or recanted, then then you weren't really saved. You were never. See, they're not talking about the fact that you can lose your salvation. They just say that you you, you never really had it. It was a false uh, false profession. And this, this ties up something that goes into our next category, which is understanding what is meant by the gift of God. And this is the uh, Greek word here, dorea, meaning a gift, an unearned present, a free gift, with an emphasis on its gracious character. And you have a similar word, another form of this noun, used in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Very well-known verse around here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see what happens in lordship salvation is they don't believe that faith is non-meritorious. See, we teach that faith is non-meritorious. There's no merit in faith. Anybody can believe. Everybody who came in here, believer or unbeliever, exercised faith Uh, when they sat down in the chair. They looked at that chair. They had a certain amount of evidence. And they said, okay, I believe that chair will hold me when I sit in it. And they sat in that chair. It's just everyday normal faith. It's the object of faith that saves, not the faith itself. But in uh, uh, certain kinds of Calvinism, and five-point Calvinism frequently and some other forms, they view pers- in their teaching uh, perseverance, by, by, uh, perseverance of the saints, then what they teach is that it, you have to have the right kind of faith to be saved. That's why you can have a false professor. That is, somebody who uh, says they believe in Jesus, but their life never shows it, so it was a false profession. They didn't really believe in Jesus. Uh, they They had the wrong kind of faith. They didn't have real faith. They didn't have genuine faith. They didn't have true saving faith. And so, in Lordship Salvation, and for the Calvinists, it's the kind of faith that saves. It's not the object of faith. We would say... Faith is faith. It's the object of faith, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. It's not the kind of faith. Now, the way they get around that, and the way they try to, just to give you a little hint, back in John, I'm still there, some of you may still be there. Back in John, you have this incident that occurs after the wedding of Cana, when Jesus turns the water into wine, when He comes to Jerusalem for Passover, and while He is there, that's when He uh, whips up on the money changers in the temple and runs them out. turns over their tables. These were big tables. This was a uh, a scene that demonstrated jesus human power and strength. He bodily picks these guys up, runs them out, and uh, takes the tables and overturns them, and just throws everything out of the temple and While he is there, of course, that causes a ruckus, gets a lot of attention. And while he is there, he performs a number of, of miracles. And we're told in John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. See, this is a passage that every one of these Guys will go to, and they will say, "See, it wasn't a genuine faith because if it was a genuine faith and they were truly saved, Jesus would trust them." I said, "Well, does that mean that that you're going to trust, uh, you know, Bubba down the street who runs the uh, shyster auto repair business and he uh, he has a uh, little fish emblem out in his uh, front window to sucker all the Christians to come in there and and then he's going to overcharge everybody? Is that?" you're just going to automatically trust him because he he says he's a Christian uh, if you're a Christian you're automatically trustworthy you're automatically good you, that that's not that's not true none of these guys would do that they wouldn't ever trust somebody just because they were they were saved Jesus doesn't entrust himself to these new believers because they're still operating on a on a misconception of the role of the Messiah. They're still thinking the Messiah is going to come and bring in a political kingdom. They haven't learned anything more than Jesus is the Messiah. So they're truly saved. The phrase translated uh, believe in his name in verse 23 in the Greek is the verb pistuo plus the preposition ace, which is the same phrase you have all through the gospel of John to indicate true, genuine Saving faith, what is the requirement for the gospel, is to believe in his name. So if everywhere else in John, believing in his name gets you saved, then these folks are genuinely saved. But they say, well, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't really a quality faith because it's based on miracles. It's based on signs. See, they, they, their faith was a shallow, superficial, non-saving faith because it was based on, on miracles. And my response to that is, well, wait a minute. Seems to me that if you go to the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, 30 and 31, when it's talking about the sign of the resurrection, John then says... but that there are many other signs that Jesus did other than the resurrection, and these, that is, these signs written in the Gospel of John, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in His name. John seems to write his whole Gospel explicating the signs that Jesus did so that people will believe and be saved. So if faith based on signs is a non-saving faith, then why do we have the Gospel of John in our Bible? You huh? no, you just can't understand these people who, who are so caught up. They're just afraid to let Christians fail in sin. So, we ha- and the same thing happens with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And what happens here is that they, they take faith as the gift. They'll translate it, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that. What's the that? They say that that refers to the faith. That faith is not of yourselves. That is, it's not your faith. You didn't know that, did you? It's the gift of God. The faith is the gift. That's how they'll argue. Faith is the gift. God gave you the faith because He elected you and He didn't elect you. He gave you the kind of faith you need to be saved. You just have a pseudo-faith over here, but you folks over here, you got the gift. God gave you the right kind of faith, so now you're saved. And that's how they translate that. The problem is, as I've noted in this slide, the word grace is a feminine noun. The word faith is a feminine noun. The that is a neuter pronoun. Now, anybody who knows anything about grammar knows that a pronoun has to agree in in gender with that to which it refers, to the antecedent noun to which it is referring. So the neuter that can't refer to faith because it's feminine can't refer to grace because it's feminine so what's it referring to well actually in greek if you have a a a compound referent then it's referred to with a neuter pronoun so that that is referring to a by grace salvation through faith the whole clause the whole subject for by grace you have been saved through faith, And that, that is that by grace salvation through faith is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's the salvation package that's the gift of God, not the faith. And if you go back previously in Ephesians, you discover the first use of this phrase is in verse 5, which is uh, the second half of the main clause. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, the interesting thing about Ephesians 2, and one of these days I'll take the time to go through Ephesians 2, is that Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, is one sentence. One long sentence. And you don't get to the subject until verse 4. You start off with a bunch of, of uh, clauses. You were who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And verse 3... All, all that is is simply secondary. the main idea is but god that 's the subject, and then the verb is given down in verse five, and actually you have a threefold verb, but God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in christ jesus that 's the main thought in the first seven verses. Everything else modifies that in some way or another. So the first use of this phrase is, By grace, you have been saved' "...by grace you have been saved," refers to the fact that God made us alive together with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is talking about the whole package. So when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the gift that we have is that gift of salvation. That's what's going on in verse 4 of Hebrews 6. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened, another way of talking about regeneration, and have tasted that as have fully experienced the heavenly gift, which is salvation, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that describing? That is talking about, two th- it's got a, a, a compound subject there, or a compound verb. The the main verb is genemi, which means to become something you were not before. So what were they before? They were spiritually dead with no relationship to God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And they became partakers, and there's our noun, metakos, referring here to the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the in dwelling of the holy spirit they become participants partakers uh with the holy spirit in something well that's what happens immediately at the instant of salvation first of all you're regenerated by the holy spirit uh, Titus 3:5 then you we're baptized Jesus Christ uses the holy spirit to to identify us with his death burial and resurrection and we are indwelt by the holy spirit all of these relationships would take place with the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. No one who is an unbeliever is a partaker of the Holy Spirit in any way, shape, or form. So these first three phrases all indicate someone who is truly, genuinely regenerated and saved. Uh, the word partaker is used in Hebrews 3.1 where the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers... Of the heavenly calling. See, it is a word indicating someone who is fully and genuinely saved. Uh, then we come on to the next phrase in Hebrews 6 5. It's our verb guo again. They have tasted, that is, fully experienced the good word of God, that is, the message of God related to salvation and the powers of the age to come. They're still living in the period of canon formation in the first century, so they have witnessed miracles. And signs and wonders, which were just a pre-taste of of the ultimate kingdom of the millennial kingdom. These things would be standard and will be standard in the coming kingdom of Christ. So they have tasted; they fully experienced it. So they're saved. But if they fall away—which is a bad translation—it should be "and fall away." All these things happen. They're saved, and then they fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The verb there is para pipto, which means to fall aside or away, to stray, to lapse. It's only used in this passage in the New Testament. Para, at the very bottom of that slide, I have two prepositions. Para, which means to the side of. And then you have another form of this word, ekpipto, which means to fall from something. And that's the word Paul uses in Galatians 6.4, to fall from grace. And we don't have time to go into that, but I wanted to take some time to look at Galatians 5.4, you who have become estranged from Christ. It's not talking about unbelievers here, it's talking about believers. You who attempt to be justified by law. If you go back to Galatians 3, the you that he's talking about are the people who have succumbed to the influence of the Judaizers. They were saved. Back in Galatians 3.3, he says, "...you began by the Spirit, but are you now trying to be matured by the flesh?" So they are genuine believers. They were saved. They began by the Spirit. But now they're trying to advance their Christian life by means of the law." So and they even have picked up the false teaching that they could be justified by the law. So Paul says, "You have fallen," which means to depart from grace. You no longer understand grace. You're no longer operating on grace. Well, this is the same thing that that's happened with the uh, this audience for the writer of Hebrews. They have fallen away, and to the point that they it's. They're not going to be renewed. See, this is referred to in Hebrews 10.25. They have forsaken the assembling together of others. In other words, they're away from doctrine. It's not just a matter of getting together with other believers. It was the getting together with other believers for the purpose of learning the Word. And they have gotten completely away from that. So there's no encouragement for one another. Earlier in Hebrews 3, the writer of Hebrews says to encourage one another continually, but this is why they, they, they've fallen away so much that they can't be renewed because there's no Christian fellowship, they've rejected the Word, they're not going to be renewed. They have just, uh, they, they've just taken a swan dive into a pool of carnality, and they're just quite happy. Well, we can't get in any further tonight, so we'll close here. We'll come back and review this a little bit and get into the next section of Hebrews 5 starting in about verse 6 and getting on through 8 where it talks about the judgment that threatens every believer who gets involved in this kind of carnality so that they are not renewed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that you would encourage us, refresh us with this word, that we might press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.